Hey, it's the Alan Carter Radio Program podcast. Here are some of the things that I learned today. The new AstraZeneca vaccine is vector-based? You mean like the cereal? I'll tell you what it really means. Plus, we are going to tell you what Dr. Williams said to the LTC Commission. Jessica Smith-Cross from QP Briefing with an absolutely must-listen interview as we talk about what Dr. Williams told that commission and Buttergate, I'm not letting it go. We're going to spread it out again. Is something up with your dairy? Let's go. Welcome, welcome. Hello, how you doing? Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Big, big smiles, and not just because of the sunshine, not just because it's Friday, but of course, great news to kick off the weekend, and that is the truth. We have new vaccines coming, and this is interesting. Depending what you read, you may hear that we have a third vaccine has now been approved. That is, uh, Canada Press has been saying that this morning, and now, of course, we have another uh, a number of other uh, news outlets saying it's a third and fourth. And the, the the truth of the matter is that it is two very much related vaccines that have been approved, but they have different manufacturing uh, plants and they're sourced slightly differently. So it's technically three and four. All of it great news. Yes. Fantastic. But like everything with COVID, you know, the, the COVID giveth and the COVID taketh away. At the same time, we get this great news that we have this big question over our heads in the province of Ontario, and that is, who is in charge? Because we have mayors and local public health officials now out actively campaigning and petitioning the provincial government. Brampton's mayor says, listen, if you're going to open one part of the GTA, if you're going to, if you're going to relax things in York Region, or if you're, you're thinking about that as we move forward with the stay-at-home order in Toronto and Peel, if you're thinking about doing that, you got to open one, you got to open them all. Open them all. Meanwhile, Mississauga is saying, no, no, we don't want to go into gray or lockdown when we lift out of this uh, stay-at-home order. We want to go directly to red. The mayor of Mississauga says the anger about region hopping is palpable. It's so we, unfair to our small retailers, and particularly on the Dundas Street Strip, where they they see people going into restaurants. Their customers are going into restaurants on the south side of the road on Dundas Street. The north side is closed, mm-hmm. and the south side is open. The stores are open, and the restaurants are open, and you can see how that you can feel their angst. That is Mayor Bonnie Crombie saying, "You can feel their anger. You can feel their angst." And meanwhile, we wait for an answer. And it is tough to divine the competency of the health leadership in this province, and specifically, I am talking about Dr. David Williams. And I know on this program, we often poke fun a little at uh, Dr. Williams and how difficult it is to sometimes understand him. But coming up, jaw-dropping testimony at the commission looking into what has happened in Ontario's LTCs. This is not reporters asking questions. These are lawyers asking questions of Dr. David Williams. And wait until you hear what he had to say about asymptomatic spread in long-term care homes. It is. It really, again, raises the question about 
who is in charge and the competency of the health leadership. These are tough questions to ask. I am not a doctor. I am not casting aspersions. I am not telling you to stop listening to the advice from the health table. But we got to ask these questions. And coming up, Jessica Smith-Cross from QP Briefing, who has been leading the way in her reporting on what's happening in long-term care, uh, joins me to talk about what the good doctor has been saying and telling the Long-Term Care Commission. Plus, Buttergate. Buttergate, if you were with us yesterday, Man, this sucker is a jaw-dropper. If you missed it, make sure you check out the Alan Carter Radio Program podcast, available wherever you get your podcast. Buttergate, listen to this. This is what, on the program yesterday, the Dalhousie professor and researcher, Sylvain Charlebois, who's a whistleblower in Buttergate, told me about the dairy industry. With this Buttergate... Um I would say for the first time, and I'm bring, I've been doing this for 25 years, this is probably the first time they haven't been able to control the narrative. And, uh, and now they're panicking. And, and one way to, to address this issue is to perhaps silence some dissenting voices, and I'm, I'm one of them. Silence some dissenting voices. You want the truth? You've come to the right place, and we're going to get to the truth you can't butter the truth. We're going to get to the truth about Buttergate, my producer, Sheba Siddiqui. What did you make of this whole Buttergate? Have you got any experience with butter not softening at the at the rate you think it should? This story actually has me really stressed because I, I am not a big fan of dairy. I'm at that age where it doesn't really sit well with me, but I bake a lot, and my kids are always baking with me. So when we're baking... We have butter on the table. We it's on the counter for their bread, for their baking, whatever it is when they need softened butter. And our butter has been hard for months. And I just thought, okay, it's the place that I've been putting it on the counter. Maybe it's a colder area of the kitchen. And now I'm reading these stories and I'm stressed. This is stressful for me. Why is the butter so hard? What are you guys putting in it? What am I feeding my kids? We are going to get to the bottom of that coming up. Uh, Global and Mail uh, columnist and cookbook author, and the, one of the other uh, uh, sort of whistleblowers in Buttergate who initially asked the question that, that you just pointed out here, Sheba, about what's going on with the butter? How come, it's not, how come it's not softening up? And she put that on social media, and, and that's one of the reasons why we're talking about Buttergate today. That is coming up. Uh, what do you make of the AstraZeneca news, that, you, that, that putting a smile on your face? I am so excited. You know that every time I speak to you, all I want is for the world to go back to normal. So with every new vaccine that we have, just keep them coming, please. Government of Canada, JT, keep it all coming in. Let's all get vaccinated. I know that it's, there's an age restriction on this mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. but that's okay. We'll save the others for the seniors. Let's get this going for under oh, 65. Okay, I'm me, so let excited. Me, let me ask you. If I was to say to you, hey, right here, I got one of these AstraZeneca's. You want one of these things, or would you like to wait for a little while longer and get your hand on a Moderna? The numbers are different. Hit me with it. Carter, I'm sick of of hibernating. Hit me with it, and I'll send you a postcard from Hawaii. All right. All right. Thank you, Sheba. Now, here is the good news. Health Canada, uh, as we're talking about, has approved the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. It is uh, for use all across the country for people 18 and over, including seniors. Now, Canada is getting 20 million doses of the shot. 
Uh, it's got two doses again. It's less effective, as we're talking about, you know, than its rival's injections. Here's the numbers. 62% in preventing symptomatic cases versus the high 90s. But it does offer... It does offer Shiva some other distinct benefits. Here's Health Canada's chief medical advisor, Dr. Supriya Sharma, with one of the advantages of the newly approved vaccine. The AstraZeneca and Serum Institute of India vaccines can be transported and stored at refrigerated temperatures between 2 and 8 degrees Celsius, giving greater flexibility in how they can be distributed across Canada. So obviously, much easier to get around. Uh, which is just great news. And here's another quote that this is important, and, and I think it gets to, I think, what the the main question people have today, which is, you, you know, should I get this one or the other one if I get a chance? And especially for people 65 and older, should you even consider getting this shot, considering the efficacy, efficacy numbers? Here is the quote from Dr. Supriya Sharma, the Health Canada's chief medical advisor, Quote, for someone 65 years and older, the question is the benefits of getting the vaccine versus not. Will it outweigh the risk? The answer to that is yes, based on all the information we have. That is, so if it's a question of we don't have enough supply to get it to people 65 and to 70, and you've seen the numbers and the rollout numbers, then just get the shot. Just exactly what what uh, what Sheba was saying. Sheba, you you want a little uh, cocktail party um, information for uh, for like the Zoom cocktail parties that you're you're doing this weekend? <laughs> yes, please. Okay, this is this is what I do for you. See, because for example, um, you know, if you're doing a, a Zoom get together, I don't know Zoom book club. I don't know what you do. I, like sometimes sometimes I play a little Zoom poker. I and have a so, Zoom book club. You have a Zoom book club. Okay. I do, yes. Okay. So in between, you know, reading chapters of the Tony Morrison book that you're probably uh, reading right now, <laughs> uh, here's what you drop in. You just say, hey, uh, uh, you know, I'm just thinking about the fact that this uh, new vaccines that they approved, those are viral vector based, totally different than the other ones. You just drop okay. that in there. Just, uh, just try it, try as it out. As smart as you? You know, you just—you don't have to know anything more than that. Oh, it's it's uh, just viral vector-based. And then you throw that in there, and, of course, everybody will look up from their book. Or in my case, I'm using this as a, as a way to distract my fellow poker players. They'll look up, hopefully, from their cards uh, and say, what does viral vector mean? Well, and then you drop this on them. What you say is, oh, well, see, what you do here is you take a related... Uh, harmless virus, and you inject that, and that tells the body's uh, defense mechanisms, oh, something wicked this way comes, and so you put up your dukes, you know, with your cells, and that manages to uh, ward off COVID-19. You know, it's, it's no biggie. I fell asleep halfway through that. I oh, come on! Miss, missed the last part. Oh, come on! It'll uh, decrease it, but uh, keep in mind the AstraZeneca is really geared for people under 65, but it's it's great news. It's fabulous news. That is uh, Doug Ford with his reaction to the AstraZeneca approval. You didn't love that? You didn't? You don't think that's a cocktail party? You're not going to drop that in at book club? No, I, I think I'll leave that to you with your uh, so-called poker club. With who? Who is it? You and your your dad pop on? Your dad gives oh, okay. you throws you a bone. All right. 
All right. Looks like I'm all in. Thanks, Sheba. Appreciate it. When we come back, we're going to tell you about what Dr. Williams had to say at that commission looking into long-term care. It's going to butter your bread. I'll tell you that for free because later on we're going to dig back into Buttergate as well. It is time to confront the hard truth about the medical leadership and the health leadership in the province of Ontario and ask some very serious questions about the response, especially when it comes to long-term care, where we know there has been a devastating impact. The death toll has been absolutely tragic, and it still continues. Things are getting better. We're getting the vaccine out there. We're getting the people in congregate care vaccinated. But at the same time, we are looking back to last spring and we're trying to figure out what happened to the quote-unquote iron ring that we were promised by Doug Ford and the Conservative government. Clearly, that iron ring did not happen. And right now, at Queen's Park, there is a commission, an inquiry into what happened in LTCs. And on Thursday, there was a 266-page transcript released. Uh, And in it, some testimony from Dr. David Williams, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Health in this province. And he was asked about the provincial response, especially with long-term care last spring. At that point already, other provinces had implemented rules, British Columbia, for example, limiting Uh, PSWs and support workers and other employees to just one home. They could not work in more than one home because there were concerns at that point about the possibility of those workers being able to transmit and bring the virus from one home to another. Here is a quote from Dr. Williams. Quote, There was no evidence to me that employees working at one long-term care home had carried it to an adjacent one and caused an outbreak, unquote. Jessica Smith-Cross is a reporter with QP Briefing who has been leading the way in much of the reporting on what happened in LTCs and joins me on the line. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. Um, What do you make of that quote from Dr. Williams? Yeah, that's an interesting one you, you picked up on there. So, It was in a long exchange with the commission's lawyer and the chief medical officer of health basically held the position that he never saw one infection at a long-term care home. He spread to another home through employees in Ontario. One of the immediate reactions from the experts who look at this outside of the government was that this was established really early on in other places. It happened in BC. It happened in one of the first major outbreaks in the States. So they've got to ask, why did you need to see it happen in Ontario before you took action? Uh, what was his response to that? Well, that's the thing. It was a four-and-a-half-hour-long interview, and um, Dr. Williams isn't known for giving clear responses on absolutely every topic. <laughs> so at that moment, you know, he he talked at length about whether or not um, he had seen this happen in Ontario. He talked about, he acknowledged that there was an issue with employees going to work in their long-term care home sick, but we never got to a place where he really did anything about that, um, which was a bit concerning. He also had concerns about um, limiting the employees uh, from working in more than one place because of their, you know, their several liberties to make enough money. A lot of these employees are only have part-time hours, and he had concerns about depriving them of income. 
However, the province did make an emergency order limiting people to work at only one home, but that came from cabinet that didn't actually come from Dr. Williams himself. And and that gets to, I think, the central issue, and it has been the contention of the NDP and the other uh, opposition members, is that it appears that Dr. Williams is not the one calling the shots. Yeah, there was an interesting exchange about that in in this uh, huge transcript. So you might remember when in May, the province opened up its testing to absolutely everybody. You didn't have to have symptoms. You just had to show up and say, I want to test. It turns out that was against the advice of the province's testing experts and against the advice of Dr. Williams. So when the commission was asking about this, Williams' response was, well, it was a desire of the premier and cabinet to do that. And the commission lawyer goes something like, and that's how it works? Yep, that's how it works. So that's how that decision was made. And ultimately, there was a strain on the province's testing system. Uh, tests were taking too long to come back, and that decision was rolled back. And, and that, that was also the decision that resulted in families lining up for hours and hours outside of testing centers. Yeah, we also those pictures auto, but it was especially bad this fall. Right, so it had a real-world impact. Um, the other thing that he talked about were the, the triggers when you'll recall... Uh, our audience will recall when Ontario released its first color-coded framework, it had certain triggers in it that, that would you know, tip a, a certain region into a higher or possibly a lower bracket. And when that came out, there was a hue and cry about it. And it took a whistleblower outside of the government to say, no, no, this is not what we recommended. And then the province had to, to backtrack. What did we learn at the commission about that? Yeah, the commission lawyer wanted to know why Williams didn't feel the need to speak out about that. Um, There was a a kind of a heartfelt moment where the commission lawyer tries to say, like, we know that when the community cases go up, it costs lives in long-term care. Didn't you feel the need to say something? Um, And Williams sort of responds like, oh, no, no, we don't know that for certain. Long-term care homes should take precautions, use their best infection prevention and control practices to protect the residents even though it was very clear at that point in the pandemic that infection and prevention and control was fairly weak in the sector and that residents were, were dying anyways. What else was there about asymptomatic spread? I think I read something else that, was a, that raised some eyebrows. Yeah, so that, yeah, that certainly did raise some eyebrows. So I think you and I and most people know now that COVID trans, can be transmitted by people who have no symptoms or they're pre-symptomatic, they haven't shown symptoms yet. That's one of the reasons that makes this virus so difficult. But Williams told the commission he didn't actually accept that asymptomatic transmission was a thing until well late into the summer. Um, that raised eyebrows because the CDC, a lot of outside experts, had that fairly well established early in the spring. So when your sort of epidemiologist types hears that the chief medical officer took that long to come to that conclusion, it made them very concerned. Speaking with Jessica Smith-Cross, who is a reporter with QP Briefing, who has been leading the uh, coverage of what's happened in LTCs, and I, I, I will point out that your your coverage has rankled the government so much that the Minister for Long-Term Care at one point just even flat out refused to take a question from you. Uh, I'm just wondering, as you look at this commission, what do we expect next? Um that did happen. We have patched things up. She's taken my, <laughs> taken my question since, but there was okay, a, bit of a bit of a moment there. Um, <laughs> yeah, as, as for next, um, speaking of that minister, Marilee Fullerton, the Minister of Long-Term Care, she's scheduled to testify today. I actually think it might be happening right now. Um, the Deputy Premier uh, and Health Minister, Christine Elliott, she, she spoke to the Commission on Wednesday. 
So we're expecting the transcripts from those interviews uh, to come out over the next few days, and we'll be reporting on, on what they said. Uh, is anything binding in this? This is not a public inquiry. It's a commission. What, I mean, what, what do we get at the end of the day from this? At the end of the day, we're going to get a report from the commission. Um, judging by the hundreds of hours of interviews that they've done, the thousands upon hundreds of thousands of documents that they subpoenaed, um, they will have some good insight into what went wrong with the pandemic and, and long-term care. I think that report will be very valuable. Um, that's expected to come out in, that must come out by the end of April. They had nine months start to finish to do this, and the government refused to grant them an extension. Mm-hmm. So we and and has been accused of dragging its feet and actually giving it information. Yeah, that's right. There's been a, quite the back and forth over the, the release of documents. So, for example, right before Williams testified, uh, sorry, spoke to the commission, they released more than 200,000 documents uh, to the commission, some of which were quite relevant and they didn't have time to go through them. Hmm. They released 2,000 pages of his handwritten notes and then had to go to an arbitrator to get them un- unredacted so that they could read them. So there's been quite an issue there. Hmm. And, and again, nothing is binding from this. This report will be public, uh, um, but nothing. It will just no, be up to the government to whether or not they adopt anything. Yeah, that's exactly right. Jessica Smith-Cross from QP Briefing. Great to have you on. Please come back when we get more information from this ongoing commission. Will do. Thank you. Wow, what did you hear there? My goodness. Does that shake your confidence a little bit? You know, I've been... Here's the thing, you know, sometimes I, I come in here into my closet in the basement of this building at Don Mills and I shout and I, you know, and I make jokes and I play, I play, I play bits from Dr. Williams and I talk about him being a, you know, a walking Mobius strip or, a, you know, a, an Escher painting come to life. But the, I mean, at the end of the day, there are lives at risk. And when you hear what you just heard about asymptomatic spread and and the slow response and having to see evidence actually in Ontario before you will believe that PSWs are spreading COVID-19 from home to home. If you were with us yesterday, man, did you ever listen to a humdinger of an interview? I just like saying humdinger because it's one of those words that, you know, possibly could be rude, but it's not. It's not. That's one of my faves. A humdinger of an interview yesterday is we talked about Buttergate. Buttergate. What is going on with your dairy? Is something up? This is what we heard from Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, who is a professor and a researcher at Dalhousie University. With this Buttergate, um, I would say for the first time, and I'm bring, I've been doing this for 25 years, this is probably the first time they haven't been able to control the narrative, and uh, and now they're panicking. and And one way to to address this issue is to perhaps silence some dissenting voices, and I'm I'm one of them. Silence dissenting voices. Who is uh, the researcher talking about? Well, he's talking about the dairy industry in this country. It's powerful. It is a powerful lobby. Following that interview, this popped into my inbox. I am a dairy farmer who does not use palm fat. That is the issue at hand, and I'll get to that in just a moment about what's going on with the butter and why it is not softening as it should. 
I am a dairy farmer who does not use palm fat. However, I see no problem with feeding it as it is fed in grams per cow per day, not bushels. It's been around for 25 years, not a new product. Am I to believe that just in the past year, it's all of a sudden become an issue, all making butter harder? I would think not. If you want to get in touch with me, it's alan.carter at globalnews.ca. That's A-L-A-N dot Carter at globalnews.ca. Because the issue at hand is our dairy farmers using palmitic acid and products, palm palm fats, to be able to juice their cows to get more milk, more dairy, more butter to get to our table. On February, February the 5th, my next guest tweeted, something is up with our butter supply, and I'm going to get to the bottom of it. Have you noticed it's no longer soft at room temperature, watery, rubbery? That tweet lit up. Julie Van Rosendahl is a cookbook author and food editor for the Globe and Mail and the author of that tweet. Welcome to the program. Hi, Alan. So what happened after you tweeted out about the butter? Well, (laughs) you know, and it's something that a lot of people have been noticing for a long time and, you know, asking about it on, on Twitter and I had people asking me about it, you know, last year. And, and so I, I kind of dug into it when I tweeted and, and posted on Facebook and Instagram. The response was overwhelming. Hundreds of people, I think a thousand on Facebook, um, saying, I thought it was just me. You know, we were just having this conversation. So it was clearly something that was going on um, across the country, you know, from season to season, not just limited to one brand uh, or one, you know, batch of butter. So, so I kind of dug into it and uh, was working on this story for the Globe and Mail and and made that connection between the, the palm fat um, in as a supplement, the palm fat-derived supplements that are marketed to dairy farmers to boost output and to increase the butter fat content. Um, and the resulting, you know, the change in the, the fatty acid profile of the resulting milk. And, and what do we know... Do we have any evidence that there has been an increase in the use of palm oils and palm fats, pardon me, by dairy farmers in the last 18 months? Well, you know, when I spent a couple of weeks talking to scientists and dairy nutritionists, livestock nutritionists, uh, farmers, tons of people just to get to the bottom of it, such a complex issue and it's such a huge industry, a $20 billion industry in Canada. And so they have been in, in use in the dairy industry for 20 years. Uh, but, you know, they're used as a tool to increase butter fat for, for farmers uh, when there's a, an increase in demand for butter fat. So, you know, the farmers that I spoke to said, you know, five, ten years ago, the fat was a surplus. You know, they were trying to lower their fat and get more fluid milk. People wanted more protein. They wanted more. They were drinking more milk. Now we're all about the fat. You know, we're, we're not buying margarine as much as we were 10, 15 years ago, everyone's baking. And so, so it's a tool. And, it, and though it has been in use, the researchers that I spoke with uh, saw a correlation between the, the size of the rations. So when I looked on Livestock Feed websites, uh, the rations are all often 400 to 900 grams per head per day. And some of the, research, the researchers I spoke to said that they saw a correlation in the transfer of palmitic acid to the milk uh, after about 300 grams. So, it, so it's partly uh, an increase in demand for fat that the industry is trying to accommodate you know, consumer demand, and, yeah. and partly that the rations are, are increasing. 
Uh, speaking with Julie Van Rosendahl, who is a uh, food editor for the Globe and Mail, and you can uh, read uh, Julie's uh, piece in the Globe. It is uh, online. It was uh, on February the 20th, uh, your article, which is very informative about supply management and some of the more arcane aspects of Canadian policy, which we won't dig into right here because <laughs> we we don't have 24 hours to figure it all out. It's, it's very complicated. I, I played for you. Uh, at the beginning there, the response from the research from Dalhousie University, uh, what has been to your, um, in your experience, the response from the dairy industry to all of this? You know, my response has been very positive. And I didn't really get into the supply supply management. That's something that Sylvain is more, uh, has spoken more to the, the, the supply management system. Um, and I, my response has been, very helpful. I haven't had any pushback uh, from farmers, from industry leaders, um, from scientists. I've had a lot of positive emails since the story came out um, saying thank you for for being thorough and offering to help moving forward. So it's been heartening to see that so many conversations are happening around this right now and there have been moves toward, um, you know, reducing or limiting or banning altogether the use of these Palm supplements uh, in the industry. So, so yeah, I haven't had any pushback. I haven't had anything negative. It's been really great. Uh, and Quebec is leading the way on that. Is is that is that true in terms of the the removal of the pan, the palm uh, oils and fats? Uh, yeah. So La Presse reported a few days ago that the Quebec Dairy Industry Council, that represents ninety one companies, including you know Saputo and Danone, and uh, they. They asked Quebec milk producers to take a, a stand against it, and and uh, Agropur, which is one of the big, you know, um, dairy producer, dairy, you know, creameries in uh, in Canada. Quebec, of course, is the main Quebec and Ontario are the main provinces, um, dairy provinces, but Quebec is is the larger of the two. Uh, they posted on Facebook, I believe, yesterday. Um, oh, my days are bl- blending together this week, but uh, backing up that, that that request of the Quebec, you know, dairy industry to ask their farmers to um, to stop using the supplements if they can. And then the Dairy Farmers of Canada as well uh, sent out a, a, a press release yesterday asking dairy farmers to, you know, while they have this, this task force together, they put together a working group to look at you know, gaps in research and what, you know, I think there's a lot of, a lot of research out there already that, that it shows the correlation between um, the palmitic acid in the supplements and the transfer to the milk. Um, but they ask that farmers look for alternatives, for fat supplement alternatives. The, the, the nutritionist, the dairy nutritionist that I have spoken to said that they don't know of any alternatives, that there isn't anything that, that works the same way. A lot of people are saying, you know, why don't they use uh, canola or, you know, Canadian grown fats? But the problem is those high omega-3 fats like canola tend to have the opposite effect. They tend to suppress the butter fat um, production in, in the milk. So, so it's not something that can be used in the same way that the palm fat-based supplement, supplements are being used. I think for a lot of our audience right now who are you know trying to grasp and grapple with all of this, uh, let's bring it back to the table. Uh, and one of your specialties, obviously, is cooking. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there any real impact at all, other than it takes longer to soften? Does it really have any impact on your cooking? 
Well, it has a lot of impact on the bread that I'm trying to butter. Like it's when it's firmer, it's hard. Like it legitimately, I'm always popping it in the microwave and then I get that hole on the side of my butter and it's melting, you know, like always. Right. But as a recipe writer, and this is when I first noticed it just personally, and I didn't even realize it was a thing until other people started asking me about it. But I, I, uh, was, you know, rethinking how I write recipes. And usually I say butter at room temperature when you have to beat it for cookie dough or frosting or whatever. And so I was thinking maybe I should say, you know, butter softened instead of butter at room temperature because room temperature. (laughs) Oh, unfortunately, we just lost Julie, but uh, uh, we're just uh, summing up there. So uh, just... (laughs) So maybe it's it's warmed butter, uh, softened butter instead of uh, butter at room temperature. That was uh, Julie Van Rosendahl, who is a cookbook author and the food editor for the Globe and Mail. And again, you can read her story in the Globe and Mail uh, about Buttergate as we continue to dig into what is the truth with our dairy in this province and in this country. Our dairy farmers actually adding something that maybe is not that best uh, not good for us there there are some questions about that there's no that, that there's no evidence there's no, no you, I, I I want to be clear that there's no health there's nothing on the health side that says absolutely that this is bad for you there are some that say well you want to try and cut that out for various different reasons but that's an opinion that's that's not health Canada saying one way or another wow my goodness that was creamy wasn't it mm! I'm I don't know about you but I'm ready to just crack open a lobster claw and just start dunking. Huh? Am I right or am I right? It's Friday. We got new vaccines coming. Can't get me down. You can't. Listen. You got a couple of days, maybe just kick back, butter some bread, enjoy yourself, be good to each other, be safe. Join me tonight on television where you can marvel at my hair. And I only point this out, by the way, if you don't know, I also have another job where I host the Global News here in Toronto at 5.30 and 6. With my co-host, Farah Nasser, whose hair is amazing and immaculate. drives me nuts. Yesterday, I go on the air. I'm on the air for just like a minute. And all of a sudden, my DMs, my Twitter DMs going off. My email going off. People are like, get a haircut, you hippie. I'm like, man, I live in Toronto. Chill. I'm going to lean into it, baby. Mm. I'm on my way. Have yourself a great weekend. My name is Alan Carter. Back again on Monday. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter radio program goes live on the air weekdays at noon.